Welcome to episode 102 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Welcome back to another episode. Um, Todd, I know that there's this rule that you're, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but yeah. I went to Vegas last weekend Uh-oh. and I have to tell you some things from it. Uh, so I ended up uh, at the National Association of Broadcasters conference because my mm. husband is in that realm and they mm-hmm. offered him some passes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just went along thinking I would just hang out with him for the day and not be around my kids and ended up seeing some really cool technology that I'm excited for and that I hope somehow trickles down and we get a hold of it at sure. some point in education and doing this field. So one of them was in um, from Canon. And they had a really big display there and they had this classroom that was set up and I had no idea what it was. We walked up and said, like, what is this in this mm-hmm. um, this room? And it is a video system that is not out yet, but is supposed to be released next year that uh, comes with a whole package with the software and the video system. And what it does is just a, a way of integrating people that are participating virtually into the classroom. So it had features like it would have one camera that was focused on like a whiteboard and would, you know, take the glare off, make a high resolution picture of the whiteboard. It would Mm -hmm. also make it so if someone walked in front of the whiteboard that they would become kind of transparent so you could still see what was on the whiteboard. It also had features where the teacher could do certain hand gestures and point to something in the room and it would actually take a high resolution photo of that room that could be sent to people later and um, has technology where it can follow the teacher around. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it was just, it was so amazing. And I was thinking about, you know, different ways that this could be used in telepractice. And Mm -hmm. one of the main things I thought about that I've struggled with is that concept of push in rather than pull out services. I, I love the concept of push-in services. I think it's so great to not pull kids out of the classroom to be integrated and see what they're actually doing and be able to help them with it. But I've struggled with how to do that as a telepractice professional and um, fill that integration in the classroom. So I think that would be a great way if you have a teacher that's using it anyways for some homebound students. You hop on there, get the information that your students are getting at school, give them some strategies to learn that information later. And I just think it would be so amazing. So I'm excited to see where that's going. The other one that I was really excited about, which kind of pulls into things that we'll talk about later in the episode Mm -hmm. too, is some 3D and virtual reality technology. So Sony had a new technology where there was a screen that made things 3D without the use of glasses at all. So you would look at the screen, it would track your pupil movements, which I, anything that's building that eye tracking technology too, I think can be pulled into our AAC devices. So that's exciting to Mm -hmm. see. But I was looking at this video game character and as I tilted my head, the whole video game character would move according to my perspective and you could see it 360. Um, I asked and they said that it is starting to be used in medical technologies of being able to see a model 3D slice Mm -hmm. to see different um, parts of the 
layers of tissues and layers of the model. So that's something too that I think, you know, just pushes us forward and being able to really connect remotely and see everything we need to see with clients and patients in the medical field and, you know, as part of speech too. So those were some, some really cool things that I saw that I had to come back and share. Well, I, th- I think you're, you're hitting on the, you know, this, this is the kind of technology we're going to be dealing with, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it's, you know, the, the virtual reality, the gamification, all of that stuff and, and how we can potentially deliver services to a classroom. Right. Um, instead of the teacher delivering, going out of the school or, you know, to the kid's home, we mm-hmm. can deliver to the classroom through telepractice and and work with a group of children or just one, but, you know, have different technologies that will aid us in doing that. Mm -hmm. So all of that is really exciting. And so it's going to be interesting over the next five to 10 years, kind of, kind of goes with who we'll talk about in a moment, who's coming up on the show of of some of the things that to look forward to. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think, uh, we have a, a big story that broke this week right. in our little telepractice telehealth world. And it involves Super Duper, the resource publisher for mostly speech language pathology, but special ed and some other areas, mm-hmm. won a lawsuit uh, in the tune of $3.5 million against presence learning. Mm-hmm. And so this broke this week, and I think we we need to let people know about this if they haven't heard. And so the, according to what I read in the story was, of course, Presence Learning was using material, copyrighted material, uh, and dig, you know getting that from uh, SuperDuper and digitizing it and, and making it available to clinicians that work for the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, without licensing or you know attribution, things like that, and so it was a you know a breach of of copyright, and so that is what we know from the sort of general articles that I have seen. What do you know, being such an insider? <laughs> I am. An I am insider. I am. So I am a contract employee with Presence Learning, so I Mm -hmm. guess I technically do not speak for them, but it was interesting to me. And just to let people know that, um, so the way that the library had worked for, uh, of resources had worked for the past several years is that it was providers that uploaded things to the library. And when you uploaded Mm -hmm. something to the library, you had the choice of either making it public or making it private. So what's interesting to me is I'm not sure if it was presence learning itself that ever uploaded these materials, but because they provided the platform that these were on and other people could use them, Mm -hmm. then I think that the, you know, the buck stopped with them and they, you know, they're, they're the ones that are getting the judgment against them. So I just think it brings up so many um, issues that all of us have to think about and deal with. Um, You know, it might Mm -hmm. not be that super duper ever comes after us personally, but Mm -hmm. just thinking about what are the things that you are, you know, if you download something from teachers pay teachers, are you then loading that into some kind of, you know, district, even a district shared drive could be 
be a potential right. of violating that um, professional's copyright. And, mm-hmm. you know, I we have so many great creators out there and I want mm-hmm. them to be able to continue creating um, online materials. And I think to do that, they need to be, you know, paid and compensated for their work. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with being paid and compensated for their work. Um, And, you know, we, we need those materials and people are going to stop making them if they know, well, I could make a paper material and I know people are going to have to purchase it Mm -hmm. to get it, or I can make an online material and people are just going to share it all over the place and I'll never get paid. So, right. It's, it's an issue that we, and so um, I think presence learning, I have seen changes in the way that they do things to kind mm-hmm. of mitigate this happening again. Um, a lot of materials disappeared overnight <laughs> <laughs> because of that. And so I think that they are being thoughtful in it too and making some, some good changes. And it's something that we all need to, you know, it, I think this was a new frontier for all of us and we need to figure out the best way to do it. I agree. And I, I think it's a big red flag for all of us. And I, I totally agree with that. And it's, um, I think, even at universities that have, you know, shared resources, you know, make sure we're not violating copyright. And, right. and so we we just need to be diligent and not, uh, not get sloppy with all that. Yeah. And, and, and it's also a big uh, wake up call for other companies that are out there. Right. Uh, in this telepractice area who are hiring SLPs and making mm-hmm. materials available, mm-hmm. that they need to make sure that they have um, gone through the right processes and, and they have, you know, gotten permissions and have, you know, licensing agreements and things like that in place. Or they may find themselves um, where Presence Learning found themselves on the, right, right. On the wrong end of a lawsuit. So. Well, on the show today, on the podcast, uh, we have Deborah Theodorus. And, and Deborah, Deb, I should say, is a great person. If you've been in this, this world of telepractice for a while, you know some of her research. Uh, she's worked a lot uh, looking at um, dysarthria and treatment through telepractice for patients with dysarthria and other uh, motor speech disorders. But she's been a professor uh, at uh, the University of Queensland in Australia, and she retired uh, relatively recently, a couple of years ago. And uh, but she's still very active, still doing a lot of great work. And she's joining us to talk about uh, how she got started in all this, but also she shares some ideas about where we're going to go in the future in terms of how the how telepractice is going to be shaped over the next five to ten years with some of the new technology that's coming out. So I'm excited to to have her on. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. Well, Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself? 
Yes, hi, I'm uh, Deb Theodorus. Um, I'm an emeritus professor uh, at the University of Queensland, uh, Brisbane, Australia. And I retired um, from uh, my position um, at the university two years ago now, at the end of 2019, with the whole idea that I was going mm -hmm. to have a life of travel uh, and do all sorts of fun <laughs> things in those two years. And that clearly went pear-shaped. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, so that didn't quite work out as I had planned. Um, but I um, got into speech pathology, of course, uh, straight from school. Um, mm -hmm. I originally had two choices, uh, to be either a teacher or uh, a speech pathologist, which nobody knew anything about back in that day. And I'm talking mm -hmm. right back in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I chose to take on that profession uh, just out of interest um, because it was different. Um, so here in Australia uh, at that time, you did a three-year degree uh, and a fourth-year honours degree, which, which I did. Um, and then I worked for some years and had children, of course, and then um, uh, ended up deciding I would go back and do a PhD. And I did that sort of 20 years after I had graduated. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, I took on a full-time position um, as a lecturer at the University of Queensland, um, and I stayed there um, for all that period of time. I was head of speech pathology there for 11 years, mm -hmm. um, and in my last two years at the university, I was the director of a uh, research centre, which was the Recover Injury Research Centre. But during that time, I... Uh, was also involved in setting up the Centre for Research uh, in Tally Rehabilitation um, at the mm -hmm. university. So that's, you know, a, a fairly long story, but that's where it comes from. <laughs> so in those years after you you graduated and you were practicing, right, mm -hmm. did you did you get into telepractice at that point? Uh, or Absolutely no? not. not. <laughs> well, well, back, back then, um, you know, technology was not it was not something that would be used way back right. then, um, right. of course. And when I started uh, in the area of tele-rehabilitation and tele-practice, um, you know, the iPad hadn't been invented and the, and the internet, well, the internet didn't, hadn't existed, you know, mm -hmm. when I was, uh, a, you know, a practising speech pathologist. So, so you know, this was uh, something that um, I started out in, in about 2004 uh, and way before the time of the iPad even and, mm -hmm. and mobile phones, you know, and, and we were looking at internet speeds of, you know, um, 120 kilobits per second right. um, back, back in those days. So, but with, um, uh, back then we referred to it as tele-rehabilitation purely because mm -hmm. uh, I'm, you know, my uh, research area is very much an adult uh, neurological communication disorders and specifically adult motor speech disorders. And mm -hmm. so, and I was in a school of health and rehabilitation sciences. So we referred to it as tele-rehabilitation, um, but certainly saw the limitations of that because it's not just uh, for rehabilitation in the true sense of the word, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, for all areas of practice um, in speech pathology. But back then I um, had gone to a... Uh, a meeting or a, no, a session of uh, listening to a person who was doing telehealth, and that was uh, 
uh, a professor in psychiatry who had got into mm -hmm. uh, telehealth and he was, came to work at the university. And I went to a, a session of him and I, I walked away from that thinking, this is really, really interesting stuff. And mm -hmm. why can't we do this in speech pathology? Being such an um, an, an audio based um, audio verbal based profession, mm -hmm. uh, why can we not go down this track? And similarly, at the same time, I'd been very um, involved in the work of um, Professor Laurie Ramig and her and her colleagues with LSVT Loud for people with yeah. Parkinson's. And I had uh, done the workshop on that and, and was engaged in some research in that area. And I was thinking, this is just perfect for people mm -hmm. uh, undergoing intensive treatment um, by a speech pathologists. And why are we dragging people in every single mm -hmm. day uh, to do something for one hour that we could potentially do um, via, you know, across the internet? Right. So that kind of piqued my interest, and that that's really uh, where I became very uh, involved in that. And at the time, I then met a PhD student in physiotherapy, uh, Trevor Russell, who's mm -hmm. now a professor at the university, and Trevor was happening to do his PhD on a telehealth model for physiotherapy. So, um, and he was a person who could code and you know do mm -hmm. all of that stuff which I couldn't do at all and right. um so he and I started having a conversation about this and um and that's where we we set up a whole range of research um in this area uh both in physiotherapy and in and in speech um and we went on then to apply for grants the the large grants here in Australia and we were lucky to get the very first uh, telegrant um, uh, in Australia uh, in relation to, you know, actual speech pathology. So, so that was very exciting and that's kind of from there we got a number of other grants and so forth as it, as it works out. Um, right. And largely it was that research was almost done exclusively in speech pathology to begin with um, and we did it very much in the adult area of mm -hmm. looking at online assessment and, and then online uh, treatment of people with mostly with dysarthria, so people with Parkinson's or um, traumatic brain injury, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of, you know, how we started um, all of that. And, of course, it then grew uh, into other areas in allied health. Uh, right. We had uh, projects happening in occupational therapy uh, in, and in physiotherapy, of course, um, and within the schools, so gradually um, that built up um, over time. Yeah. And so, so you were you were approaching it from a, the research perspective. Very much so. And did uh, the training side, the clinical side of training future graduates, get involved with service yes. delivery? Yes, that didn't happen till a lot later. Okay. Um, and I'm just trying to remember when that was. Now that was uh, we're talking about five or six years ago now, five years ago. Um, we were very lucky to receive a big philanthropic donation. Um, mm -hmm. a, a donor came to the university and wanted to uh, provide some funding for speech pathology, of which we were all very 
excited about. Yeah. And, um, Who told you about us? That's kind of how I feel when that happens. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're usually bottom of that. We're never quite right. up there with the, the top stuff. Um, but anyway, it turns out that this gentleman did, in fact, um, have a, a speech disorder most of his life, and um, he had wanted to um, repay the university in some way. So anyway, he the, his foundation gave us money uh, to uh, to the university to set up a... Um, a tele-rehabilitation clinic um, mm. within the school. So what happened there was the university reconfigured some rooms. We had an mm. architect design the whole suite. Uh, we have four studios in there uh, where uh, students can uh, go in and be delivering uh, services while at the same time being observed by a clinical educator um, and, you know, working with the students on and doing that. And Trevor and I um, very hastily pulled together a, a training program um, online for the students that they had to do and practical things they had to do before they started seeing clients. So we had that online there for them and they would go through that and then do a clinical sessions um, in that area. Now, that was prior, that was pre-COVID, of course. Right. So things took a while to to get going. I mean, obviously, uh, the speech department took it on board fairly quickly. The other disciplines were slower um, to get it. OT was very good, occupational therapy, you know, and got their students into it. Um, and then um, so that was that was great. And then uh, that went on for some time and we did some more research work in that area um, and um and you know, but we had fabulous facility uh, for that, with all the correct lighting and the correct backgrounds, and you know, great equipment. So, and that still exists, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah. So, students were already being exposed to it um, in the school prior to prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when. Tim and I started, we we were in a closet. <laughs> yep. It was a former yeah. closet. <laughs> Actually, our very first one, I think, was in like the radio broadcast room of the university, something weird. like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We were we're yeah. familiar with the like borrowed spaces and things like yeah. that. Well, well, we certainly started off like that. And um and Trevor um developed a system uh, a whole mm. system that eventually was a laptop in a in a suitcase basically oh. so he developed uh it was sort of uh, what's now called neo rehab mm-hmm. uh and uh we set up a startup a country company through the university um with that um and that system of course had um because you know he has this coding ability uh he he set all of that up and and it it functioned, you know, very similar to to Zoom, but had some mm-hmm. a lot of other uh, unique components to it with respect to measurement, um, right. and particularly for physiotherapy. So the capacity to be able to take reliable measurements across the internet, because it's not that easy to do that. Yeah. Um, and he did a lot of work, enormous amount of work in that. So in, and it's now used in one of the major public hospital, a couple of the major public hospitals here. Um, but he's, you're able to measure, you know, length of gait and, you know, hip movement, shoulder movement, all that sort of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's a, um, a piece of uh, technology that is now uh, available here in Australia, it doesn't, obviously, it doesn't have um, approvals for other countries, really, at this point in time. 
Um, but yeah, so he he developed a lot of that, and that sort of helped physiotherapy go ahead in in a big way. Um, mm. For us in speech, we we did a lot of validation studies on online assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, to and that was at that stage when we did those studies. Um, none of the publishers had gone to online testing. Uh, So we had to get permission from them to be able to convert the test into an online format so we could deliver it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did that with things like um, uh, the Boston aphasia, Mm -hmm. you know, test and diagnostic aphasia test um, and a few of the few others. Um, So we did that for the course of the actual, got permission of the course for the research um, and to be able to validate um, those assessments online. And, of course, as you know, um, many of the big companies now are are doing, uh, developing online testing material, which I think is just fantastic um, that that sort of thing is happening. Um, Yeah, because that was, you know, the whole, most of our research we started off was very much about validation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it the same as face-to-face or comparable um, to face-to-face? So we did a lot of projects in that area on assessment and then uh, more on um, intervention after that. So that's how it kind of evolved um, over time. Uh, but we were functioning on very, very low internet speeds um, <laughs> and, and had to do a lot of workarounds uh, to be able to compensate. Uh, for that type of thing but but it took here in Australia you know it it took a long time for people I mean we're talking over 18 years for people to really uh, get the idea that this was possible Uh, and people some people picked it up very quickly Mm -hmm. other people remained rather skeptical until COVID hit (laughs) yeah and COVID absolutely was the impetus to send this out there to make it uh, something that is acceptable um, by the profession and much more and, and I think is is going to be an integral part of everyday practice. Right. Well, I was, you know, just thinking, you know, the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, but the, the idea that, that Australia, and of course, I'm not Australian, so please correct me if I'm misstating this. Most of the population is on one side of Australia, and then it's very rural towards the interior. Is that correct? Very correct. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you yeah. do have you know uh, cities and, and small uh, towns and things uh, in those areas though that need services. Yes. And so I, I've I've always assumed that because that was the case, because because I've heard stories of, of practitioners having to charter airplanes and fly out to a certain point and deliver services and fly back and how expensive mm-hmm. that was. And that uh, it wasn't until, you know, telepractice and telehealth came along that mm-hmm. that they could you know do it in a much more uh, feasible way. Yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, Australia is a huge continent, um, and but most of the population lives along the east coast, mm-hmm. right down the east coast of Australia, and a little bit over on the western side. But in between, it's you know, it's a five-hour flight from one side to the other. So it's a bit like the United States, um, right. uh, going west to east or either way. 
So it's it, it's a very large continent, and in the middle there is nothing, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of desert mostly. Right. Um, so uh, yeah. So but having said that, there are lots of uh, rural and very remote communities that live mm-hmm. further away from the coast. So you know, people will be out on cattle properties that are, mm-hmm. you know hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, away and you know it might take them two hours to drive from their front fence to to their actual house so you know very vast properties um out there but of course and and definitely telly was originally set up with the idea that this would help people in rural uh remote areas Mm -hmm. but of course you know and those people had to have satellite um Mm -hmm. internet to be able um to to do that and, and, you know, frankly, I think Australia was very slow in getting on board with um, a high-speed internet, um, particularly to the rural areas, and that's still an issue here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that's what it was originally designed for. Um, however, it became very apparent um, through, you know, the work that we were doing and many others that um, it was not just for people in rural areas, mm-hmm. uh, but somebody who lived two doors down from a clinic who was severely disabled or, you know, unable to get um, out of their house very easily also could benefit greatly from um, telepractice. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I had a personal experience. Well, not, I was a clinic working with a patient um, up the road from the university at one stage in a, in a project we were doing. And, you know, he, there was no way he, well, he could get out of his house, but it required about two or three people and, you know, to get him, you know, down to our clinic at the university, um, mm-hmm. which seemed crazy to me when you mm-hmm. could link up and, um, you know, be able to deliver um, a therapy um, to that person. Um, so it, it became very obvious that, that it was, you know, relevant for, um, for any person, no matter where they lived. Um, and when you think about, and certainly in my area of practice, in, in the adult area, dealing with people mm-hmm. with, with sometimes very significant physical disability, cognitive disabilities, um, et cetera, um, it made sense that you could work with them in their home and not expect them to uh, make the effort and tire themselves out to get to a clinic, yeah. um, you know, and be able to, uh, to be able to function well once they got to the clinic. Um, and certainly people with Parkinson's disease where you want to work with them when they're in their optimum, you know, medication uh, zone. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think um, it just made sense to be able to use telepractice. So it it became much more not always about the rural Mm -hmm. um, situation but very much about the ability to use it um, for, for any type of uh, client, be an adult or a child, and and to give that sort of choice and control to people about how they receive their services. Yeah, right. I think yeah. that's I, that's a great way to look at it, and just having it. I think now that we've all had some experience with it, um, li- viewing it as a choice that I can offer my clients when it's appropriate, instead of something. I have to do if I'm forced into this situation or that I'm only going to do it with these types of clients, having it be flexible like that, I think is important and a direction that we need to go in. Yes. Yes. And I think, I think COVID um, 
has probably mm. really embedded that sort of concept right. in many ways because people could not leave their homes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and therefore, um, you know, it had to be delivered, um, in, the treatment had to be delivered into their own home or the interaction had to be delivered into their own home. So um, it, people then said, well, okay, I can do this now. Um, so when the lockdown's over and the world goes back um, to what it was before, uh, do I really need to get myself down there to see the speech pathologist mm-hmm. when right. we could do this from home? Right. Mm-hmm. And I, so, yeah, I think it happened on both sides, the consumer side that they were like, yeah. why am I leaving my house mm-hmm. to do this? And the SLP yeah. side, why am I making them lo- leave their house to do this? Well, it doesn't sort of make a lot of sense when you've got mm-hmm. people who are, um, you know, have significant disability, particularly. And then if you look on the paediatric side, um, you have, you know, parents there with, you know, two or three children and they're trying to get them all in the car to be able to get the one child to the speech pathologist mm-hmm. and the one child falls asleep in the car. I've been there with mm-hmm. that sort of scenario with kindergartens and schools, right? Mm-hmm. And the child falls asleep and you're like, oh, my gosh, no, now <laughs> I've got to get them out of the car. You know, it's it's all of those kinds mm-hmm. of um, hassles that um, parents um, experience. And I think um, this way, if it's possible to be done via telepractice, and and I certainly am always very strong about the fact that it is not for every single client that we see, um, Mm -hmm. that there are some people where this will not work for them. Um, But at the end of the day, as a clinician, you have to make that clinical judgment um, and, and it's very important to do those initial kind of interaction with the person, a trial on, on uh, a, via tele to see if it's going to work for them. And I think, you know, we've had experience in many of our research trials where the majority, absolutely the majority of people have been suitable mm-hmm. uh, for it, even people who we wanted, not so sure, but there have been some where particularly those with very uh, short attention spans or cognitive difficulties where it doesn't, it's just not going to work for those particular people. Um, So I think you still, as a clinician, you have to make that judgment and you have to make that assessment. And and you also have to be sure that you have the appropriate amount of, um, you know, good internet connection. And Mm -hmm. here in Australia, you know, we strongly advise that people check that out before you Mm -hmm. launch into uh, telepractice um, and just make sure that uh, it's going to be good enough for you to be able to deliver the service. Right. So so that does can rule out some people, you know, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. that situation. But, um, But I think that's very important to test before you start. Yeah, I like those kind of ideas and guidelines for how to choose somebody for it. Yes, yes, exactly. So um, that you do need to. And I think, you know, that's very important from a professional ethical perspective uh, to be able to go through those steps. Um, and sometimes you think you the person is suitable and you think, yes, this will work. And then you get on and you find out during the session that it's not going to. Um, And at that point, you you really do have to change tack um, on that. But by and large, you know, we we have worked with people well into their 80s 
mm-hmm. um, and older, um, working, you know, with uh, doing, and they love it. Mm-hmm. They get on board. They have no computer literacy mm-hmm. at all. Um, <laughs> and I think the system that we developed at UQ, Neo Rehab, was very much uh, developed uh, so that the client did not have to do very much at all, that it right. very quickly, uh, very user-friendly on their end, and it was all driven by the clinician. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got to make the system easy uh, mm-hmm. for the person on the other end. Um, and so as a result of that, they all really, really liked it and were very excited about it. Um, and, in fact, one big RCT we did, people who were desperate to make sure they wanted to get on the telly arm of the project, not on the mm-hmm. <laughs> not on the face-to-face arm. Um, right. But, um, you know, they say, oh, I hope I get on, on the telly arm because <laughs> um, they particularly, you know, wanted to do that. So, so that was very encouraging because mm-hmm. we got a lot of, uh, negativity from people saying, oh, older people won't be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not true right? Uh, at all from our experience. Um, and I think you have to always think ahead that mm-hmm. the next generation are going to are computer literate, you know. Right. So, yep. you know, you've got to you know, in in doing the research in this area, we kept looking forward all the time saying, mm-hmm. well, okay, the internet speed right now is like abysmal, mm-hmm. but we can do it. But right. it's always going to get better, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and as I said, we started this before even things like the iPad um, mm-hmm. were invented. So, uh, it, you know, it all changed very, very dramatically and very, very rapidly. Um, and so if you keep looking ahead and saying, well, yes, well, the next step, we, we will be able to do this particular part of it because the technology is going to get there um, in the end. And it did. Um, right. And I think people uh, in thinking of that with the, uh, if you think ahead, the next generation, certainly the generation after that, everyone is totally, you know, computer literate mm-hmm. in so many ways. So I think it's... Um, uh, it's a very forward-thinking uh, area um, mm-hmm. of research and a very exciting area, I think, um, for for the profession. I think. Um, I agree. And we're going we're going to see things that we would never have dreamt of. Yeah. So, what do you think is coming next? Talking mm-hmm. about the future of yep. telepractice. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I think I think one of the things we're going to see um, is very much. Uh, more programs or online programs that are going to be developed to support people with uh, to to self manage um, mm-hmm. their their speech mm-hmm. uh, issue or their communication issue, um, and particularly I see that in the rehabilitation area, of course, mm-hmm. right. uh, where there's long term more long term um, uh, rehabilitation, but but there's also that potential, of course, within the pediatric area. But where you see uh, uh, sort of online programs where uh, a client will be able to interact with the speech pathologist um, online in a synchronous way like we're doing um, and then be able to have uh, a, a period of uh, intervention in that format and then be able to go on to some uh, other activities in an asynchronous way, mm-hmm. be it 
via apps or other right. types of things that they might do um, and or, you know, be able to do the and, and then be monitored by the, mm-hmm. the speech pathologist, right? So if you think of a person with, um, say, Parkinson's disease, for instance, they could go online, have a, a, a four-week uh, program of, say, LSVT Loud, for instance, mm-hmm. or any other treatment. It's, you mm-hmm. know, I'm just picking that one because I know it. LSVT loud for a period of time. They then go into a, a maintenance period where they could uh, be doing various uh, speech exercises or activities mm-hmm. that they can record at home on their right. on their phone. Uh, they can then send that audio recording to the to the website. Um, speech pathologists can go on and have a listen to how they're going, what their speech mm-hmm. is sounding like. Uh, being able to monitor whether or not, you know, their mm-hmm. volume's dropping off or they're struggling, then hook up with them, have a talk to them, try and get them back on track again, you know, whatever. Or they may not hear from them for six months, mm-hmm. you know, or 12 mm-hmm. months. But the person, the, the individual has, once again, that choice and control about how mm-hmm. um, they manage uh, their their communication issue. And for those with long-term communication issues, you know, it's very hard. The health systems and things do not support ongoing maintenance in a face-to-face manner. Right. So you have this many visits or something like that. Exactly. And insurance companies and, you know, all Mm -hmm. the rest of it. So I think it's it's looking at at placing, you know, speech pathology into that online uh, kind of world where, uh, you can have synchronous and asynchronous interactions with your clients, um, at, but they also will have tools at home to be able to um, mm-hmm. to take a video of somebody eating a meal, mm-hmm. you know, see if they've got swallowing issues, whatever, being able to put that up on the uh, website. The speech pathologists can look at it and say, look, you, I can see you're struggling. We need to see you. You know, so you, you're interacting in in both worlds, face to face world and uh, and an online world, um, right. but but you've got uh, you've got options for people, um, and I think the development of self management and facilitating self management is very very important, right. um, and and I think we probably, in my opinion, we probably don't do that well enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think technology gives you a means to uh, to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's I think that's something that over time will develop in certain areas uh, mm-hmm. where you will have that kind of um, you know interaction um, and that monitoring. Mm-hmm. I think um, on the assessment side of things, I think we're going to see a big explosion in online assessment tools um, mm-hmm. that will be developed by publishers. Um, and I mean, and specifically for online, not, mm-hmm. not yes. w- we made it to do in person, now we're fixing not. it to be able to do online. Yeah, exactly. I think so too. It, yeah, exactly. And and the development of, of, of new tests that are done online but are validated online, mm-hmm. right, um, because there are some tests that we have that you can adapt to the online but you still have to have some things in front of the client, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Right. 
Um, so I think you'll see, you know, those types of things going. So, so when people think about doing a new assessment uh, for whatever can, uh, communication disorder it might be, they should be thinking about doing it online mm-hmm. um, so that it's got greater application um, you know, going forward. So I think the assessment stuff, I think um, the other area that I'm particularly interested in and excited about is the concept of developing uh, good speech recognition for disordered mm-hmm. speech. Um, speech recognition software, as you know, is huge mm-hmm. and uh, massive companies have, uh, you know, developed all of our uh, appliances at home where you can right. talk to everything. Yep. But the big issue, of course, is that it doesn't work well for people with disordered speech. Right. So, um, but I'm aware that uh, one of the very large companies has a project operating, mm-hmm. um, and you've probably heard about it. It's, it's done with Google called mm-hmm. Euphonia. Right. And, and that one is, you know, looking at collecting uh, all mm-hmm. of the um, samples of people um, to try and develop an algorithm that will uh, allow the software to recognise the speech. I think that would just be really a big game changer. Um, My my three-year-old who now says, hey, doodle, instead of, hey, Google, would be very (laughs) excited (laughs) to tell what she was saying. (laughs) Well, there you go. And, and, you know, I think if you think about it from the point of view of, you know, uh, from in the AAC world, um, right? For mm. people being able to to use um, speech recognition software uh, to be understood would just be absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's very mm. tricky, of course, because um, you know you've got to have an awful lot of samples uh, to develop the algorithm. But look, I have faith in um, big faith in technology, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I have great faith in in those huge companies that uh, you know have the resources and the and the power and the and the intellect to be able to do it. Um, so I think that's going to be a big game changer. And I think um, it will be fantastic for the clients. For us as speech pathologists, we badly need a good objective tool to measure intelligibility, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a, the bane of our lives working in the, in the motor speech area, not being right. able to have, or in any area, in the mm-hmm. paediatric right. area as well, right. not be able to have an objective tool to measure intelligibility. We do all this perceptual assessment, but, you know, we all know that that's fraught with um, reliability-type issues. So right. I think if you had a speech recognition software where you could, the person could, you run their speech samples through the software, you get a... Uh, percentage rating, whatever, of mm-hmm. the level of intelligibility, and then of course you inter- you do the intervention and you mm-hmm. measure it again. So I think you know as a tool, I think it would be fantastic um, for speech pathologists. So, but I, I think so. I think that will come. It may not happen quickly, but mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a big a game changer um, for us. Mm-hmm. I think the other area that's also one I'm very excited about is virtual reality Mm -hmm. Um, and the use of virtual reality uh, for both assessment and Mm -hmm. for intervention I think is going to be um, another big game changer in the profession. We, We started before I 
retired, we started doing some preliminary work in that area to uh, look at developing sort of case scenarios of uh, simple things like a coffee shop scenario um, and taking the client into the coffee shop and um, mm-hmm. and having them, you know, order their cup of coffee and, you know, against mm-hmm. a background noise of people talking and, sure. you know, all those mm-hmm. sort of things which you can, you can adjust. Um, so, and, I mean, virtual reality has certainly been explored in speech pathology and, um, and that, that certainly was done in the area of stuttering mm-hmm. um, some quite some years ago now. Um, but I think, once again, the technology wasn't as up to it to mm-hmm. what it is now. I mean, virtual reality, the whole gaming industry mm-hmm. changed the whole virtual reality um, uh, arena. And I think, you know, why are we, we need to benefit from that right. um, mm-hmm. in speech pathology and, and use virtual reality as a medium uh, to be able to, um, uh, to work with people. Um, and I think it, certainly uh, the technology's got way better it's got cheaper um, because the goggles and all of those things now have mm-hmm. come down to a price that's reasonable. Once upon a time, you had to have the, like the room, you know, the big yeah. <laughs> set up like three type. cameras in yeah. your room and be within yeah. a certain area. Yeah, it's changed that's a lot right. just to like in the last five years. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So that, but the software now is vastly different, and um, and I think that's a really exciting area and. My colleague um, Trevor Russell was telling me not so long ago that they've actually been able to do it online, you know, so mm, right. being able to transfer the, the virtual reality thing online. I'm like, okay. That's awesome. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, so it's, it, you know, it's got capacity to be able to do that, you bring the person into a facility and do virtual reality, or you can do start, to, you know, that whole uh, taking it to an online um, kind of mode. I haven't actually seen it in operation, but I um, hope to soon. So I think it's, uh, to me, that's a, a big game changer because, you know, we work with people in a clinical setting or, or at, at home, sometimes face-to-face, but we don't actually see them mm-hmm. um, out in the community uh, and how they're coping um, in different scenarios with different background noise, with, you know, whatever, in the school situation or whatever. So I, I think virtual reality is a place where we can uh, assess people, see how they do function in those environments uh, and do it in a safe way um, and, and do various intervention, teach them various strategies to be able to manage um, in a safe way before they do go out into, um, into the actual community. So um, I think virtual reality is going to be a big game changer. Yeah. I Absolutely. I agree. I think that virtual reality with artificial intelligence and the learning that's will happen mm-hmm. and it's it's you know I think the next 10 years is going to be really phenomenal. And yeah. I and I just I I hope stepping back into a university setting now in terms of training clinicians that the universities can get behind this way of training their students to use this kind of technology. Yes, and, yes. and I, I have some doubts that we're going to get there anytime soon because mm-hmm. um, even with COVID uh, and many of the universities here in the States having to jump online very quickly, I think 
some of them are like, oh, we did that for COVID. We don't have to do that anymore. We're going back to going back yeah. to normal the way we've always done it. Yeah. Instead of like you're doing, looking at where are we going to be in five years or 10 years? That's how we need to be. That's where the research needs to be. That's how we need to prepare our students to, to be in that world because that's what they're going to yes. inherit. Well, that's absolutely true. And I think, um, I mean, one way that that's, it's a, also a professional issue, uh, not just an education university mm-hmm. issue, right? So it's professional organisations have mm-hmm. to be forward thinking to say, well, we, for accreditation purposes, mm-hmm. universities must include, um, you know, uh, techno- use of technology in its various forms, right? And right. so technology is a very broad word. So it can be a whole range of things. It can be synchronous. It can be asynchronous mm-hmm. work, whatever. But by and large, people need to learn that the, the, the speech pathologists of the future need to learn how to interact with technology and, and to use it and embed it within their practice. Um Certainly here in Australia, Speech Pathology Australia um, have gone certainly down that track and it is part of the accreditation uh, requirements. They're not saying that uh, every student has to have uh, X mm-hmm. amount of time in a, in a teleclinic, but, but saying it is recognised as an important part of, of our training. But in effect, the universities are all moving to this anyway because... Because they have to, because when the students graduate now in many going into the in the private sector and areas and into the public sector here in Australia, mm-hmm. um, telehealth, tele is part of what they'll have to do anyway. Um, so you have to prepare them um, for that. Um, so it's kind of got to be embedded mm-hmm. in, in a way in the accreditation uh, process um, to for universities, I think, for to to push them forward in that area. Um, And, I mean, you know, I think COVID's been a big wake-up call um, Mm -hmm. for uh, telepractice. Um, I mean, we banged on about it for (laughs) 18 years um, and then suddenly, boom, um, (laughs) for two years uh, it happened. Um, Here, uh, just sort of prior to COVID, um, in the lead up to COVID, and uh, we had started, Trevor and myself and some other colleagues started developing a, a, a telehealth for clinical practice online training, online mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. Um, which our uh, university has now uh, developed as a, a, a sort of a, a, an additional uh, accreditation kind of credentialing type course mm-hmm. um, that's available. So, um, and and that covers a whole range of uh, health areas, um, but um, but it gives the basics of, of telepractice. But I think the thing is the principles and, and that of it. But I, I think, you know, it, it, these kinds of things change over time. The technology changes. Uh, so courses like that can only be about the, the general principles and uh, what you do, what's the what's the research evidence? We did a lot of work on uh, in that course about um, producing all the research evidence across the various um, health disciplines uh, mm-hmm. for tele. Um, but of course, that gets out of date pretty quickly too, um, <laughs> right, because right. It's, it's going along. But I mean, if you look at the research that's coming out, it's it's really exploded um, mm-hmm. 
with COVID coming right. on and there's more and more uh, being published in that area. But, um, but yeah, I think, look, I, I totally believe that it will be an integral part of training um, for all speech pathologists because your consumer demands it. That's right. Right? They will demand it, yep. right? So yep. um, that's what they're just going to go, well, why do I need to come to you mm-hmm. when I can, you know, be at home? Because I know so-and-so down the road does this. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I think it'll become a, it'll it'll be consumer-driven mm-hmm. from that, that respect too. And But I think the professionals, the professional associations have also got to uh, to drive it. Mm. I agree. And I, and I can say that ASHA here in the States has been very, very positive through COVID, providing lots of resources and training and things like that. I think mm. that next step of getting into the accreditation process mm. of training programs and university programs, I think we need to take that step. And we haven't really done that yet. Um, no, no, related, yeah, related to telehealth and telepractice. But yeah, yeah, I think I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the that that's the way that it's going to go, and um, mm-hmm. and also the students want it, True. right? Because you know they've experienced it, and um, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know uh, students kind of are okay with doing Zoom and and you know mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, but getting them to our experiences is getting them to uh, adapt what they do face to face to online um, is something that is a, a real process for them to think through. Mm-hmm. But they're very, very inventive with a lot mm-hmm. of this stuff, and they do they come up with all sorts of great ideas, and right. they can do it. But then are we do we go to the next stage now where it's just doing it online, not right. mm-hmm. always adapting from face-to-face to right. online, you know. So so you start to practice in an online uh, format all the time and you uh, you work from that base rather than adaptation. Mm-hmm. Right. So that will probably be the, the next part that will come. Right. I agree. Mm-hmm. So. Well, Deb, I think it's time for... Our, our what we call the moment of Zen. Are you ready for that? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> so uh, we have what we call our moment of Zen, where we ask you a few questions mm-hmm. uh, about you. And it was sort of based on the original Proust uh, questionnaire that was developed years ago. So I want you to choose A, B, or C. Okay. Which one do you want? A, B, oh, or C? I, oh, okay. Um, all right, I'll choose C. Mm, C, huh? Okay. So <clears throat> where did you grow up and how did that affect who you became? Oh, my goodness. Okay, I grew up <laughs> in a... <laughs> I grew up in a small country town in mm-hmm. northern Queensland called mm-hmm. Mackay. Uh, and I grew up on a sugarcane farm. Uh, on a sugarcane farm. Sugarcane farm. Okay. Yep. Um, I grew up there, uh, and I was there till I was seventeen before I went um, to university. How did that? What was the, How did that affect who I became? Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's a tricky one. Um, look, I, I think I had a, a, a very sound uh, uh, grounding in life and came farm. I, it was idyllic, really, mm-hmm. compared to, <laughs> in that uh, we we spent a lot of time, you know, outside. Uh, we didn't have, well, when I was growing up, we didn't have TV. So that mm-hmm. really, you know, ages me dreadfully. Um, mm-hmm. But um yeah, so I think I had a very uh, wonderful growing up from that perspective and um, uh, always outside uh, a lot of, you know, in North Queensland it was always very hot, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of swimming, a lot of, you know, water skiing, you know, all those kind of water sport things that we used to do in those days. Um, but I think I, um, I've always had an interest in, in, in people um, mm-hmm. and in socialising and communicating with people. And I think um, that aspect of it um, was what probably stands you in good stead, of course, as a, as a speech pathologist. Um, right. But I did have a very idyllic life. And um, I guess I, in some ways, wasn't uh, always, was not prepared for what life hit me with along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have a, my husband and I, we have a son of who's 36 who's severely disabled. Um, so I guess uh, that was a big uh, mm-hmm. thing that changed our lives dramatically and changes your perspective on life, um, sure. very much so. So, yeah, but but I think, you know, I had a, a loving family, a great upbringing and um, really wasn't aware of what life could bring in, in the long run, but uh, but just the same, I think all of those things uh, ground you um, sure. at the end. Mm. Sure. Yep. Um, our next question is, uh, if money wasn't a factor, what would you do with your time? So if you didn't do um, what you, you were doing, what would you rather do? Now or before when I was working? Just now? When, yeah, whenever. Uh, travel. Travel. I, I think travel is the greatest... Mm-hmm. education of all I absolutely agree. love it absolutely love it and australians are by nature very uh, big travelers um mm-hmm. i mean we live a long way from anywhere uh, mm-hmm. but um, and everything is a 12 hour you know 16 hour 20 something hour uh, haul right. um i was just over in the states actually for my, to see my daughter who's married to an american and, and I guess we instill the love of travel in our children and subsequently the oldest one has gone to live in the United States. Um, but, yeah, travel would be it for me. That's I awesome. Absolutely love it. Um, uh, yeah. I would agree with, with that answer. Um, <laughs> what was the last thing you searched for on Google? Um, I think it was a destination. Okay. I think it was a travel destination, travel. to be honest. That's yeah. good. I told my kids the other day that I was older than Google and their eyes got big and they didn't believe me. <laughs> and they asked Google how old Google was. <laughs> yeah. Look, I do look up a lot of um, uh, destination places, I, I have to admit. Yeah. Well, have you seen the walking tours on YouTube? No. No. So there's a whole... Yeah, there's a whole little section on YouTube. Okay. I'll write that down. For travel, yeah. And so if you're going to a certain city, uh, yeah. there there may be a video of someone who's doing yeah. sort of a walking tour. Okay. 
and they kind of just walk and talk to you about, huh. you know, what they're seeing. And, they, you know, it's really, some of them are really quite good. So, Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, yeah. my husband is loves history. So, you know, he's very, always very interested in, um, in that sort of thing. But, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I like to, we, we like to travel. And, and, of course, you know, being a Queenslander, we're, well, I am, my husband's not so much a sun bunny, but I love being at the beach and, you know, mm. in the water and, you know, things like that. So we, we go for those kinds of holidays often. Um, Good. But, um, yeah, so that's pretty much it. And, I mean, you know, whilst I'm, you know, here retired, I'm, you know, doing bits and I still have PhD students and I still do some, you know, writing up papers, et cetera, with mm-hmm. people. So you, you don't really cut yourself off from uh, university life very easily. That's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> um, what yeah. do people misunderstand about you? What do they misunderstand? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I think I'm a pretty open person. <laughs> um, they misunderstand. Probably misunderstand my humor sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's a What's a common myth about your job? Well, what you do. My previous job or previous job. Oh, a common myth was that um, academia was a breezy job. Easy. <laughs> Acad- <laughs> academics don't do much at all. Well. A colleague was just telling me here in the States, there was a study that just came out. I forget who did it, but it, I think it was one of the like U.S. Department of Labor or something said the least stressful job. And I think professor was number one oh, on this list. I don't know how that I was is. Like, they didn't talk to me. <laughs> it's certainly not that. I think it's one of the hardest uh, jobs that that there are. Um, I mean, I know it looks simple. You're in front of a computer and you're in front of a class or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's a very it, it, it. When I started, I can remember people, uh, our lectures and stuff. They used to go off to long lunches, right? I can remember right. that. <laughs> yeah, it was great. But I boy, know. oh boy, it changed mm-hmm. over those years very, very fast. And um, the demands of academics and the requirements, you know, what mm-hmm. you have to do to add, to add, to achieve this and go up the ladder and, you know, all the rest of it is very significant. Yeah. Well, I, I had an old professor who said, when, you know, back in probably the 60s, and he says, yeah, the, we got tenure. The, the chair just decided who got it and you got a letter and said you had oh. tenure. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no. It's and, and it depends on the university too. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you're uh, University of Queensland is a uh, you know obviously one of the very top you know, was mm-hmm. the top university in the country, uh, but it's also in the top fifty in the world. Right, um, and it's a very research intensive university. Mm-hmm. So um, you have to do you have to do a lot of research, but at the same time the university always wins the major teaching awards mm-hmm. through the country and all of that sort of thing. So it's a very high, really high pressure university. It's, just, it's a sandstone university, you know, a sort of the oldest, one of the oldest in the country, um, right. but it has a very, very good uh, international reputation. So therefore you, you know, people, the expectation is very high. Very, very high. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Let's see what, what challenge, you, you may have just answered this a few minutes ago, uh, what challenge in life shaped you the most? 
Well, actually, there were two. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The first was uh, the loss of a child Mm -hmm. um, uh, in a sudden infant death Mm -hmm. um, and followed by the birth of our son with severe disability. Mm-hmm. So they, they were the two things that completely turns your life upside down and changes your whole perspective on sure. life. Sure. Having said that, um, I don't think I would have gone down the path I did um, if that hadn't happened. Yeah, my life would have been different. Very so in yeah. some ways, um, as as awful as it was, it had a very positive um, impact really right mm. yeah so it's just it's those life events you know that right. i think uh challenge you in life and change your perspective um but it, it is about how what you make out of that i mean right. um you know you just have to you have to go on you have to make that decision and um and i guess when when those two events happen so closely in my life I then decided that um, life had to be better. We had to get mm-hmm. past it. We had to go on. And that's when I decided, you know, I want to do a PhD and I wanted mm-hmm. to, you know, go on. And I always was interested in learning about other things and new things um, uh, in the profession. So so that's, you know, why I did it. But I, I definitely believe I probably wouldn't have taken that path had I had that not happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's interesting how those life events affect your path and your journey. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, they do. Yeah. Um, when are you the most productive? Um, <clears throat> mornings and then later at night when I was working. I would like go to work all day. I always have a slump mm. of about three o'clock. Mm. And then, but I, I can, I used to work late into the night as yeah. well. That was my, my other time when it's quiet. Yeah. When yeah. you can just do your thing. Um, yeah. What's a, what's a favorite comfort food? <laughs> Don't say okay. Vegemite. Cause that's, that's, a, that's <laughs> oh, Vegemite, the only one. Yes. Veggie. Yes. Um, uh, comfort food, uh, chocolate. Chocolate. Yeah, yeah. But but uh, fat comfort drink okay. is wine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely wine. Um, yeah. And probably mm. my most com- comforting one is um, French champagne, but that's oh. not on a regular basis. <laughs> Very nice. Special occasions. Special occasions. <laughs> Special occasions, yeah. Um, uh, wine, wine and chocolate. That, that mm. sounds like a good combination. Um do you have a life motto or quote that inspires you? Um, not really. Well, well, I guess in some ways I always, uh, it took me a long time to realise it, but, you know, there are always um, worse things that can happen mm-hmm. uh, to you in life. And I know that's a kind of a negative uh, type motto, uh, but mm-hmm. that was one of the things, you know, that it, it, things could always be worse, um, you know, uh, in, in that way. But I, I think I, I just try to be um, forward thinking and right. and always looking to the next to the next thing that I can do. I'm, a, I'm sort of a bit of a project oriented person in that I have to have something planned, mm-hmm. you know, and something good to look forward to. Um, 
so so always looking forward I suppose is really yeah I'm, I'm not a big one to dwell on the past I try to always look forward well that's that's good advice mm-hmm. uh, last question and uh, if heaven exists what do you want to hear God say when you enter the pearly gates <laughs> Um, oh, probably, oh my gosh, is she here? Is she going to hassle me? Is she going to hassle me? (laughs) How much hassle is this going to be, you know? (laughs) Yeah, because I'm not a, yeah, I'm not a very, um, acquiescent kind of person. And, uh, Mm -hmm. I do, I do have a, I do like to have my say and, um, uh, you know, He'll probably think, oh, another person is going to hassle me all the time <laughs> about about what are we going to do next and, you know, where are we going to go? I like <laughs> that. I like that. We have work to do. What have you yeah, been doing? Yeah, yeah. What are we doing? Come on. Because I, I need a project. You know, I need something. I need something, um, you know, to look forward to. And, look, you know, that doesn't have to be anything big. It could be just, you know, I'm going to a show or I'm going to do something. But, right. um, yeah, I like, to, I like to have things. And because since I've retired... I think my husband's like, oh, my gosh, because he hasn't quite retired yet. And, you know, so I've started a few projects around the house, which, mm. you know, you do. Because you, <laughs> sure. you, haven't, you haven't really lived in your house the whole time you've worked. Mm-hmm. You live here, but you don't really live here. It's kind of, right. Right. but when you're home, you see all these things that need to be done and you go, well, we mm-hmm. should do this and we should do that, you know. I'm, I'm watching my parents do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> You start going, oh, okay, so this is where I live. I really right. need to sort this out here. Yep. And, yep. and of course, the husband <laughs> yeah. is getting this this honey do list that gets longer and longer yeah. and longer, right? When yeah, he comes home, right. it's like, what else do I need to do? <laughs> I know. And of course, I'm always, I'm the organizer. So I do all mm. the organization, you know, what have you. And, um, and of course, inevitably, it costs money, all of these mm. things that you do. So uh, he shudders every time I, every time I go, you know what, I think, I think we should do something. And he's like, oh, <laughs> that's just I've been thinking. <laughs> I've been thinking. Opens yeah. the checkbook. That's, yeah. When my wife that's uses right. those words, I try to run and hide. Uh, yeah. I've been yeah. thinking. And it's like, I'm out of here. I well, know. well, Deb, it's, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the podcast. And and I, I wish you continued success and, and fun and lots of wine and chocolate in your retirement, even though it doesn't sound like you're really retired. Uh, but uh, how could people maybe reach out to you if they would like to correspond? Um, they can do it through my email. Okay. Um, I'm, I still retain a university email because I'm an emeritus um, professor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, they can contact me through. That's the easiest way. I'm, you know, I'm still on email every single solitary day. Right, um, right. So, um, yeah, so people can contact me on that. And that's through the University of Queensland. So University of Queensland, the one, the one that you emailed me on. Okay. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. Well, thank you again for doing this and uh, come back again and, and update us on how things are going in another six months or so. All right. Okay. That would be, that would be wonderful. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you. Um, I was, um, you know, very honored uh, for you to invite me um, onto the uh, onto your podcast and um, and uh, and good luck with your company and the work that you're doing. I think it's a great idea 
um, because it's just such an easy way for people to get information. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like the concept. It was very good. Thank you. Thank um, you very much. Okay. Well, good luck with it all. I want to thank Professor Deb Theodorus, all the way from Australia, for joining us on the podcast. She has such great insight in terms of how telepractice has evolved and how it will continue to evolve going forward. So it was really exciting to have her on the podcast and to hear from her directly. And I wish her all the best in her retirement, although it doesn't sound like she's getting a lot of rest and uh, while she's retired. Thank you as well for joining us on the podcast. If you don't mind, please rate, subscribe, share this podcast. If you do rate it, please leave us a five-star review. That helps us to attract new subscribers, and it helps us to kind of move up in our rankings within healthcare, uh, this whole Telepractice Today podcast. So we do appreciate any time you're able to do that. But that, until next week, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.